Good morning. My name is Lydia Foreman. I'm part of the Northside team uh, here. And we're going to be looking at that passage that Tripp just read in Matthew 15. We're, we're picking up from where Tripp left off last week um, and focusing on the story of this Canaanite woman and her great faith. Uh, I was joking with Tripp earlier, you know, way to leave me the easy passage. He gets the one where Jesus walks on water and I get the one where he calls a woman a dog. So <laughs> thanks for that. No, but um, as seriously, as someone who, who really loves the Old Testament and has found herself in more than one conversation about you know, defending, defending these rough parts of the Bible, um, I gotta say, I really loved actually the challenge of diving into this passage this week. Uh, you may have read this passage before or just heard it read a few seconds ago and thought like, yikes, like how do I square my normal portrait of Jesus with you know what he's saying here? I mean, and if you've read the Bible long enough on your own, which you will inevitably encounter these passages that make you feel uncomfortable, right? Um, you've experienced what I call like Bible anxiety. So I have a couple of thoughts on how to engage in these sort of uncomfortable passages before we get started that I just kind of wanted to quickly note. So the first thing I think is one of the best things we can do when we encounter a passage like this that makes us feel discomfort and like, what do we do with it? Is just to simply acknowledge how it's making us feel. Um, be honest with yourself and with the Lord. Uh, if we avoid these passages, we're, we're never gonna learn anything from them, right? And it's okay to really walk away from these passages and think like, you know, how do I make sense of this? I'm gonna need some time to wrestle with this, uh, to think about it further. Uh, if you think that you're offending the Lord by doing this, like, you know, be at peace, he can take it. So that's my first sort of set of advice. But then the second thing I would say is, not to uh, sand off those raw edges of scripture that do make us feel uncomfortable. So it may be, be very well that like uh, what we hear sits differently on our modern ears than how it did on ancient ones on the first listeners, but let's not be so quick to rush to that safer interpretation of scripture. I think we do, we do violence to the text when we do things like that. The Bible is just a, a difficult book. It's very complex and it just, deserves a great deal more of attention than we often uh, give it, to be quite honest. Uh, so it's inevitable that we're going to encounter these passages from time to time, that we're not gonna have just ready applications or ready, easy answers to. Uh, but I think the worst thing we can do is to try to sanitize it or make it more palatable. I think that boldly and persistently uh, confronting these perplexing passages is really the only way forward as uh, faithful followers of Jesus and, and faithful interpreters of scripture. And coincidentally, the main character of our passage today, this Canaanite woman actually models those two things, boldness and persistence uh, perfectly. So all that being said, what is going on in this passage? It kind of feels a bit like you've walked into, like when you've walked into a room and you can tell there's like a really serious conversation going on between like three people and you have no context, but it sounds very serious. Uh, like, you know, why is Jesus talking about defilement? Like, what does he even mean by that? Is he being literal? Uh, you know, why are the Pharisees upset? They're obviously taking offense. They're reading between the lines of what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus responds in a parable and the disciples have no, no clue what he's talking about. And then we get this strange story of this Canaanite woman right after that. 
And that's also very odd because Jesus seems very un-Jesus in the story, right? I mean, at best he's, he's a little rude and at worst he's like using a maybe racist or sexist slur, right? Um, until the very last second we're like, whew, okay, there's the Jesus I know, right? So take a breath. And I think the best thing we can do here is just sort of break it down. So the, we have actually two stories here. Verses 10 through 20 is the one where Jesus talks about defilement, what makes a person unclean and what makes a person clean. And that's one story. And that sort of sets the stage for the second story, which is in verses 21 through 28, where we get the story of the Canaanite woman and Jesus's interaction with her. So in this first story, Jesus is responding to something that happened earlier in this chapter. The Pharisees, uh, if you go back to the first couple of verses in chapter 15, the Pharisees are calling out something that he see the disciples doing, which is they don't wash their hands before they eat. Uh, and reading this verse about the disciples not washing their hands probably uh, summons feelings in you as it does in me. Is like when you're watching a Netflix or something or TV and you're seeing people in a crowded bar without masks and they're hugging and interacting. And you're like, oh, what are you doing? Like, this is, what, this is what COVID has done to us all. So, but hygiene aside, what the disciples were not following was uh, ritual purity law. This is what the Pharisees were calling out in their behavior. And so in response, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees' own hypocrisy in another example, which is too complicated to go into now, but suffice to say, they were prioritizing the rule over the moral law, the heart of what God was after. So they were following a particular law that happened to have the appearance of piety, but undermined the whole point of the law. And so this conversation spills into the passage for today where Jesus is giving a crowd a lesson on what defiles a person. And Jesus essentially says, it's what comes out of the mouth of the person that makes them unclean, not what goes into it. The point of all these purity laws is to become the kind of person that possesses true inner goodness. Uh, if you've hung around Trinity long enough, you've definitely heard us quote Dallas Willard from time to time. And he outlines this whole idea very carefully in his book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy. Uh, his whole point is basically that Jesus came to show us how to be good people, not just people who do good and kind things or just the right thing. It's less about the externals and more about the internal. And now we have to be careful in reading passages like this. We get really tempted uh, to slip into this tendency of saying, oh, the Pharisees, they're so legalistic. They love their rules. That's their, that's their thing. They love their rules. Uh, but you have to remember that Jesus actually never told his disciples or anyone else to abandon like ritual law. He never said to like not observe the Sabbath or any of those things. Jesus fights against this, not because he has a problem with first century Judaism, but because this is a human problem, right? Uh, that tendency to cling to external markers of who's in and who's out is just a human problem. It's a human tendency. Uh, we know that we're living in that moment right now. We're experiencing call out culture, cancel culture. Uh, you know, we see that daily. Fundamentalism exists all over the ideological spectrum, right? Uh, so, Matthew, immediately following Jesus's lesson on putting ritual ahead of ethics of what matters more of what goes, uh, what goes in the mouth versus what comes out of the heart, he chooses this place to, play, you know, to place the story of the Canaanite woman. Now, one thing to keep in mind about Matthew's gospel in particular is that he's primarily writing to Jewish Christians 
uh, it's in a church community that's uh, rapidly growing its uh, Gentile membership and it's becoming more Gentile in its worldview. So that's something to kind of keep in mind when you read Matthew. And so this story, this Gentile woman is going to be who would become the vast majority of the church. But she's not just a Gentile woman, right? Uh, in Mark's version of this story, he refers to her as the Syrophoenician woman, which is correct. She's from Tyre and Sidon, so that's Phoenicia. Uh, and we're told at the beginning of Matthew that that's, this is where Jesus is. But Matthew chooses to call her by a much more loaded term, but it's kind of weird. It's a little bit archaic. He calls her a Canaanite. And that's, it's a bit strange, honestly, for him to be using that term uh, because there are no Canaanites in the first century anymore. You may remember the Canaanites from more like the Old Testament. They're the pagan culture that Israel was repeatedly warned against intermingling with, not worshiping their gods, not marrying their women, all those sorts of things. Uh, it's kind of like if someone in the South today were to call like a Northerner, like a carpet bagger or something like that. Like, like, did you just step out of 1867? Like, where did that come from? I mean, you know what they were talking about maybe, but it's a very odd term to be using. Uh, but Matthew uses this sort of anachronistic term on purpose, right? Because this isn't just any old Gentile he wants to say. This is persona non grata. She's a triple threat. She's got, triple, she's got three strikes against her. She's a woman, she's a foreigner, and a foreigner who uh, arouses these sort of deep-seated animosities between uh, the Jews and her. And yet, and yet, this ultimate outsider... Uh, this definition of an unclean person calls out to Jesus for healing for her daughter. And what's really remarkable is that she not only recognizes his ability as a healer, which is interesting because she's not in the typical region that Jesus has been performing these miracles, but she recognizes his authority. She calls him the son of David, meaning that she recognizes his kingship She actually sees him as the Messiah, which is incredible for a Gentile woman, but it's also incredible because the disciples have been painfully slow in recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, it isn't until the next chapter that Peter actually declares Jesus the Messiah. He called him son of God in the previous chapter, but that's not quite the same thing. That's not quite the same thing as referring to him as the Messiah. So now for the perplexing part of the story. And if we're honest, this passage would probably make a lot of us feel better if we just deleted verses 21 through 27 and we just skipped right to where Jesus uh, heals her and comments on her, uh, heals her daughter and comments on her great faith, right? Like the end, yay. Uh, but we can't do that, right? She continues to shout um, because we read that the disciples are telling Jesus like, hey, like, can you please shut her up? So she's obviously making quite a, quite a stink, really. And he's, they're asking Jesus to send her away, but he doesn't send her away. He says in response, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And that's the first like, oh, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, this isn't, this doesn't sound right. But this is interesting. And maybe even a little bit ironic that he says this, because even though that is indeed Jesus's mission, first to Israel, he's in Gentile territory and he hasn't forgotten where he is. And we haven't forgotten where he is. Matthew's been very careful to tell us that he's in this region of Tyre and Sidon. But then the woman, perhaps encouraged that Jesus isn't doing what his disciples are asking him to do. He's not sending her away. She comes closer and she continues to beg, but she also kneels. And she adds this physical gesture, 
to accompany her declaration of Jesus's kingship. And so she continues to ask for Jesus' help while kneeling. If the catchphrase, nevertheless, she persisted, applied to any woman in history, I think it applies to this woman. Uh, she's like, you know, forget the externals, forget that I'm a woman, forget that I'm a Gentile, forget that, you know, I'm approaching this man who all of his male followers are telling, you know, telling him to ignore me. Forget all of that. I know power when I see it. And so then we get to the most cringy or the coolest part of the story, depending on your perspective. Uh, Jesus says, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Ugh. Again, Jesus is not sounding like typical Jesus, right? Now, remember when I said earlier not to sand off those, those raw edges of scripture? Well, here's where a lot of people, I think, uh, slip into that tendency. They really like to do that because they're very uncomfortable with Jesus using this sort of pejorative term that the Jews had for Gentiles. Um, because of her identity as a Gentile, he's referring to her as a dog. And so they end up saying something to the effect like, well, it's, it's probably like this diminutive term. It's not really dog. It means more like, like puppy. And, and Jesus is like viewing her as the sweet puppy. Everybody likes puppies. <laughs> but I don't think that's actually what's going on here. I don't think the language supports it. But I also don't think it goes hand in hand with how Matthew has described this woman. He calls her a Canaanite, right? This is an enemy. So he describes her in the language of this ancient enemy. And I think what Jesus is doing here is intentionally stirring up a debate. He knows this woman is up for it, right? Like she's already demonstrated her courage. She's approached Jesus. She's boldly calling him out. She's recognizing his authority. She just doesn't get any, any bolder than this. And he's meeting her where she is. And we know this, right? Like we know how to engage, you know, in debate with people, like when we can use sarcasm or whatnot, uh, depending on our audience. So for, for instance, I remember uh, the day that I could use more complex nuanced arguments with one of my children because uh, he had just, this was one of my kids. He was, I think about six at the time and he had just gotten the game Clue um, as a present. And so we were opening it up and I was explaining the game to him and showing them the pieces. And, but I wasn't ready to play it yet. I was like, we can't play it right now, but you know, don't lose any of the pieces. Cause if we go to play it, we don't have the pieces. We'll be sad, et cetera. Um, and so I leave, but he can't resist it because they love, kids love those little metal pieces and Clue, like the lead pipe and the wrench and all that kind of stuff. So he's playing with those. And I'm downstairs and I don't know why, who knows why kids do what they do. He had this urge to put one of the pieces, I think the lead pipe into the little hole in the doorknob. Um, and so he, he puts it in there and of course he can't get it out. And so it's, you know, it's lost. So he comes down and he tells me, and this is exactly how he enters the room. He says, so technically if I know where it is, it's not lost. <laughs> and he was right. And I knew at that moment, like what future debates with him as a teenager were going to look like. And I was like, oh boy. But I think this is what Jesus knows. He, he's recognizing what this woman is made of. He knows that she's ready for it. And he's engaging and repartee with this woman. He enters this conversation using the expected language of a, of a Jew towards a Gentile, knowing that she's up for the debate. And turns out Jesus is pretty smart. He's right because she fires right back Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And that yet is so important because she's literally debating Jesus right now. Who does that? This, it's this Canaanite woman, she does it. And she does it 
not out of skepticism like the Pharisees. He's, she's not trying to trap Jesus. She's not trying to trip him up like the Pharisees did. She's doing it out of deep faith of, in who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing. And then Jesus says, and this is the only time he tells someone this. He's, he's amazed by the faith of the centurion a few chapters earlier, but this is the only person he tells directly, woman, great is your faith. And then he heals her daughter. It's really, it's stories like this that really make, the, make me stunned in awe of the, the Bible's brilliance. Because I mean, what a powerful and beautiful illustration of how what comes out of the heart, what comes out of heart is what matters most. Uh, technically, yes, she is the most unclean person in every sense. No amount of hand washing is going to change her uncleanness as a Gentile. But her faith, what was at her core, what Jesus has said is what matters most is what spills out here and it overrides all those barriers. She has faith that Jesus has the power both to save Israel and both as well as her Gentile daughter, right? She's ahead of her time. She's sort of this renegade. I love it. Uh, I like what N.T. Wright says of this passage. He says, this woman's faith broke through the waiting period. The disciples and perhaps Jesus himself are not yet ready for Calvary. And this foreign woman is already insisting upon Easter. I've been thinking about this woman all week and it's, it's really convicted me of uh, what a sanitized faith I have, uh, just how limp my faith is. I've had the privilege and the advantage of you know, knowing Jesus my whole life. And yet I feel like I oftentimes just settle for a much tamer version of my faith. And I look at the story between Jesus and this woman, their interaction, this dynamic they have, and I have, I have FOMO, right? Like, I just love this dynamic. Somewhere along the road, we've, we've gotten the impression that it's not okay to wrestle with the Lord. Like that's somehow um, not acceptable, but it's actually a sign of this of robust faith. Um, so I've been asking myself, and maybe you can start as well, where are the areas of my life um, where I'm being called to persistence and boldness in approaching the Lord? Where am I like the disciples where I'm just painfully slow in recognizing who Jesus is and his kingship and his authority and his power um, over my little world, but also over the world, the world? You know, where am I missing out? I think our world is in dire need of this kind of faith. So I'm just going to ask, God grant us the eyes to see Jesus in all of his power. If you're able, would you please stand to recite the words of the Nicene Creed?